life. Welcome to Waxing the Porpoise podcast. Uh, you got your host, Jim G Baby, along with the usual suspect, Steve. Hey, How's it Jim. going? Hey, good. how are you, friend? Good, man. Good to see you. Yeah, likewise. We are here. This is episode six now. We're talking about another uh, Ridley Scott film, Black Rain, from 1989. This is obviously a first-time watch for Steve. Uh, I've seen this movie a lot of times. I kind of put it up there, maybe not as high as Blade Runner, but I mean, it's to me, it's got a lot of similarities. Got the Asian influence. It was filmed in Japan primarily it's another film by dark brooding kind of film with a detective uh from ridley scott so i like this one a lot i'm i'm pretty curious to see what what's your uh what's your initial take on this film uh i agree definitely better than blade runner all right we can start there okay yeah i i liked it quite a bit there, nice. were, there, were, there were a few parts where I thought it was going to get a little, a little uh, Blade Runner e with like the super dark aesthetic. You know, there were some rainy parts that I was a little worried it was going to be <laughs> rainy again. Rain! But uh, no, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I was I was a little skeptical going in because I can't remember if we talked about this already, but. When Jim and I used to work together, he had this stupid poster up next to his desk for, that's my cat, uh, at what, a couple years? So every time I would come over to your desk, I would have to look at this ridiculous ass poster. Yeah. And so it just looked <laughs> looked really corny and really 80s, but it was just a good, enjoyable movie. I'm sure it, I'm sure it got trashed by critics, you know, just because of the type of movie it is, but... I liked it quite a bit. It's actually cool. I I was I was thinking you probably wouldn't, but I was I was hoping against hope that uh, that you would like it. So cool. Is it was it the Michael Douglas factor that that brought it home, or was that the the biggest part of it that helped? I do I do like Michael Douglas quite a bit, and he was such a raging asshole in this movie from beginning to end. Totally yeah. unnecessarily. He wasn't yeah. like, you know, a guy who doesn't pull any punches and tells it like it is. Like, he was just such an asshole yeah. this entire movie. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, kind of like what I was saying about my criticism of Blade Runner, which I don't want to just talk about endlessly. But I felt like that movie was too far on one end of the spectrum of style over substance. But this one I felt like was much more balanced. It, it didn't go too far, in my opinion, into the, you know, style, aesthetic, whatever. But it was just a, a good story. I thought the, um, like, you know, setting and where they choose to 
chose to shoot was pretty cool and not way over the top like I kind of thought Blade Runner was. But and I kept it was driving me nuts the entire movie who the blonde was uh, until I finally looked it up and then I realized she was from Temple of Doom. Yeah, she's actually. This is going straight from memory. Pretty sure that's Steven Spielberg's wife, and I don't know. Are they yeah. still married? Do you know? Uh, I'm not sure if they are, but I remember. I remember looking her up at some point after watching it to to figure out where she was from. When I saw Temple of Doom, it reminded me like, oh yeah, that's you know Steven Spielberg's wife. But I didn't check to see if if they were still married. Yeah, I know. Uh, they they were together for a lot of years. Wait, was it? Was she actually in? Temple of Doom? Oh, okay, she was. I'm getting her mixed up with Kim Cattrall, who was in Big Trouble Little China with Kurt Russell. Because that's kind of like an Indiana Jones-type uh, movie. So I get, I get them mixed up. They, they look pretty similar, to be honest. You know who Kim, Kim this Cattrall is, is? This is? Dude, Kate Capshaw is a dime piece, too. Back here in circa 89. She's a good-looking woman. I... I have a thing with curly hair. I just can't stand it. What? Yeah, it just I don't like it. Get out. I think she had I think she had straight hair at one point in the movie, right? I want to say she did, and I remember thinking, God, she looks so much better with straight hair. But. I can't remember. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, she's she's fine as hell. Um and it looks like she is still married to Steven Spielberg. How fun. Um How fun. Good for those kids. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and speaking to whether it bombed or not, I t- sometimes it's hard to tell with older films like what the consensus was or like what the buzz about it was during the time if people liked it because you know stuff like that this that's this old gets rediscovered like by a later generation like myself and you know uh, people people of a certain age and you know it becomes a cult classic or it becomes revered later for whatever reason i think this is one of those kind of but at least from the rotten tomatoes it looks like it's got a 50 percent uh from critics and a 55 percent audience um and the critic consensus is black rain has its fair share of ridley scott's directorial flair but it's paint by number story never rises above genre conventions Somebody is going to take that thing and stuff it right up your ass. I think that's kind of a milk toast I, yeah. take, but I mean, because I liked it, that that made me sort of think that it was just going to get trashed for being like a mindless, you know, action kicking the shit out of people movie, which is why I liked it. So I just yeah. I think it's got a little bit more nuance than that too, but it definitely has that in spades. Um I mean, there's there's a, quite a few chase scenes and sh- and shootouts, but there's also some intrigue, and I th- I feel like the plot is fairly complex. Like it's got a lot of moving parts, yeah. a lot of different players, and like it was a, which, it was a good story. I think the whatever that critic said about paint by numbers, I feel like that's a little a little unfair. Yeah, that's that's kind of a lazy critique. I think that too is like that could be like an algorithmic like. Uh, consolidation of a bunch of critic critiques and so maybe it just spits that out on rotten tomatoes but i i tend to to trend more with the imdb uh uh review and this this says a 6.6 on 
IMDb. Personally, See, if we're yeah, going, seems low. Yeah, seems low if, to me. If if I were going on a ten point scale, I'd probably put this. This would be like a strong seven. Like a, I'd put this at like a seven point six, maybe up to like eight point two. But yeah, strong C, weak B. Yeah, I could I could deal with that. There was only one part of the movie where I I like pulled back and was like, this is weird and it doesn't match the rest of the movie. Can you guess which part I'm thinking of? Um, there was just one part that didn't seem to fit, you know, one of these things is not like the other. It was the part where Andy Garcia gets up and does karaoke. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're trying to... That was... Uh, yeah. That was so weird. Mots! <laughs> Yeah, they're trying. Yeah. It, it seemed like they were trying to add a little bit of like like levity, because it's a pretty brooding kind of film. There's not a lot of comedic breaks or yeah. Well, maybe he they, he, he, di- he dies shortly after that. So I thought maybe in hindsight they were trying to they were trying like, to maybe quickly get you more emotionally connected to him right yeah. before he dies, so it it had more impact, but. Yeah, I can see that too. I'm trying to like endear you to him a little bit more, because yeah, as much as like I love Andy Garcia, I think this is probably one of his more forgettable roles. Um, he seems like super goofy. Like I don't know, yeah. he seems like coked up through, you know, the the beginning of it. Yeah, like he's talking about shoes and shit, and he's like, "Ladies of the '80s are going for shoes," and like, yeah, he's like this kind of like streetwise, like kind of player, like the he's like the the younger, more uh, he's got more vitality. He's like maybe he's he they were using him as like a, a contrast to like Nick being this Michael Douglas's character being uh, kind of broken and hamstrung by being divorced and like. He's going through the shit, you know, with the internal affairs investigation. Uh-huh. I don't know. That, that's kind of my take. Like, the grizzled vet, but it shows that, like, he's kind of hip, too, because he pals around with this younger, hell-on-wheels kind of upstart other detective in Andy Garcia. But I didn't really buy their friendship. I, I don't know. But I, I just think that, yeah, like, Given, like, if you look at Andy Garcia's body of work, this is probably one of his, like, lesser films. But it carries me through enough because I'm I'm a big Andy Garcia fan, too, it just in general. So I was just happy to see him in this film. But, yeah, like, I thought his death scenes pretty seemed a little corny, him getting his head chopped off. but Right. And, and because I haven't seen a ton of movies, I can't really think of him... And a lot of other stuff off the top of my head. I mean, the first thing I think of is Ocean's Eleven. And he's just, you know, obviously that's made 15, 20 years later. So he's just a different a different actor yeah. at that point. I think his prime was everything pre the year 2000. And then beyond that, he's kind of relegated to like, yeah, Ocean's Eleven. He's like a regular, you know, generic. Anyone could stand in for the like villain of that film. Or he's like the the foil in that film, but he's he's in a lot of good stuff. I think his prime is like the nineties. He's in uh, there's a, a a rare gem called Jennifer Eight, starring Andy Garcia. That he he plays the lead in opposite Uma Thurman and Lance Henriksen. That's actually one I'd like to watch uh, or cover one of these days 
for this podcast. That's that's just a good film. John John Malkovich has a bit role in it at the end, and he play mm-hmm. he plays like a hard ass like internal affairs guy, and uh, him him and the verbal sparring between him and Andy Garcia is is pretty awesome. But he's also in uh, one of our former coworkers, Matt, used to love uh, things to do in Denver when you're dead. It's mm. kind of a, it's kind of an obscure film too, but it's got like Christopher Walken, Andy Garcia's the lead. Um, who else is in it? Treat Williams, William Forsyth, Christopher Lloyd. It's kind of like a pack of strays, like uh, Bad News Bears group of like thugs that are set up like from Jump Street to like go pull off this heist when they're gonna be like when they're set up to be the Patsy right out of the gate, but. Uh, he was in another film too called Steel Big Steel Little where he plays twins in that film those three kind of stand out to me for him but yeah I don't think he's he's utilized very well but in Black well, Rain but put him on the list of movies I haven't seen too often yeah. yeah I think we just hit like three or four lightning round that you haven't seen um, okay so uh, yeah we went over the audience score so yeah i think so we're both our consensus is this is better than it's given credit for kind of film yeah i mean like i've said before and i'll say again a million times like i'm not a movie i'm not a real movie person so my my criticism is just based on like did i like it or not not oh it was a it was a good well-made film so that being said yeah i enjoyed it right on Cool. There was that funny, you know, I think it's one of the first scenes where he does that motorcycle race. Yeah. Under, under the bridge, which was a, it was a, it was a fun little corny intro, but then for the next hour and 48 minutes, there wasn't really any more reference to him on a motorcycle. Yeah. So the whole time I was thinking, okay, this has got to come back at some yeah. point. Otherwise, why would they put this random scene in the beginning? Yeah. And then we chase it, when he's chasing the guy and he comes up on those two motorcycles, I was like, oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, t- they bring it ass. back. Yeah, dude. That- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that part's awesome. Um, all right. So I guess, too, let's, uh, I want to run, run through real quick who, uh, who our main cast of characters is in this film. So Good luck with the, all the pronunciations. I think I got a couple of them uh, okay. down. I'm not going to do everyone, that's for sure, because then I'll get into trouble. But yeah, so this is uh, a 1989 film uh, directed by Ridley Scott. Uh, we're probably going to see a couple more of these on this podcast from him. He's like one of my favorite directors of all time. So, um, stars Michael Douglas as Nick Detective Nick Conklin, Andy Garcia, as we already talked about, as his partner, Charlie Vincent. Kate Capshaw, Steven Spielberg's wife, has a bit role as like the expedition or exposition dump character, um, and then what that man? exposition. So like the person or the th- the th- device, it can be a person or like a thing in a movie that has expository information like within the film like to t- it's like it's leaning in and winking at the audience like this is what's going on like they use Kate Capshaw to you know describe to Nick who is like 
we're watching the movie pretty much through Nick's eyes, Michael Douglas, about the background of like you know the the yakuza, the the two subsets, the two families that are at war, just kind of breaking down like you know he's a stranger in a strange land, and so are we, uh, and she's like explaining you know the plot basically like what's what's going on to the audience. That's that's like uh, like people call him like an, an info dump or like you know exposition too can be in like you know in sci-fi movies they'll have like a little it's not quite like a montage but they might go through you know something through a computer or they'll show like something explaining like where we're at in in the in the story and so it's something that kind of like moves the story along right and i think you know a lot of people will say like the best helps, helps explain it right and like i guess the best uses of that it's like less is more kind of thing and if you can weave it into the story without having you know your token expository character just come in and be like you know explain everything and then you don't see him again i don't think they're with her character she because she kind of comes in and out throughout the story a little bit and it it seems like it's kind of setting up like a love interest type character for michael douglas too but i think more so it's just like a friend another american in the story because it's all set you know it's like fish out of water stranger in a strange land kind of thing he's trying to navigate uh like the customs and like you know just the whole the whole ball game there is different than him being a detective in new york so i think they could have done worse and they could have done better it's fine her her character but i think the dark horse uh actor in this film that i i really like well i guess it's two it's the japanese uh foils so ken takakura who plays matsuhiro uh masahiro mats like the their kind of um their handler in in japan uh that's part of their uh police force and then the dude who played uh sato i'll probably butcher his name but it's uh yusaku matsuda uh he's pretty badass he's a pretty cold villain like i I think he has that down um i thought both of those guys did a really good job yeah yeah the and the guy who played Mats, uh, Ken Takakura, he's actually known in Japan as like the Clint Eastwood of Japanese film. Only like if Clint Eastwood were like more of a villain, more of an anti-hero. He's been in like if you look at his uh, filmography, he's been in a shit ton of movies. Uh, I guess he did like 180 films between like 1962 and like 1978 in Japan. He hasn't been in very many American films. I think there's only like three or four, uh, and all of them are kind of to the level of Blade Runner. There's one called The Yakuza that he was in in like 1974, directed by Sidney Pollack, that was kind of his breakout to American cinema. But then he went back and he just did a shit more ton Japanese films. So he's kind of a rare... He he seems more familiar. Like, he seems more comfortable in front of, like, you know, an American audience, like an American film, which is why I thought... I thought I had recognized him in something else, but he really hasn't been in a lot of American cinema. But, um, yeah, he normally played, like, the Yakuza boss. He played, like, a badass, like, you know, no qualms about putting a bullet in someone's head and, like, being that character. Whereas in this character, I mean, he's he's really, like, gentle, kind of like, you know, uh, 
full of honor and like tradition and very by the book and i like how but he also i I feel like he operates in a gray area too like he's he's more willing to uh to meet michael douglas's character and you know go just beyond uh the rank and file because that's i mean that's how this story comes to its conclusion you know i think he gets there as the story goes on yeah you know early on he seemed kind of hesitant and just sort of uh, i'm gonna do everything by the book and kind of sensitive and then by the end you can tell he's like coming around to to more of the michael douglas school of ass kickery yeah (laughs) oh and maybe maybe you thought you recognized him or he seemed really comfortable like his english was really good so it's surprising that he didn't he didn't do a bunch of american movies yeah yeah i was i was shocked i was like i could have sworn he was in more but when i did a, a a cursory bit of research i looked him up and uh yeah i was shocked that he hasn't been in more but it is it is kind of cool that he plays he's playing very hard against type in this film and i think he knocks it out of the park too so um yeah so that's that's the main cast of characters in here there's another guy i'm sure or actually i'm not sure but uh do you recall at the very beginning towards the beginning of the film when uh michael douglas is getting brazed by uh internal affairs for his side story thing i already know where you're going with this yep the the main fat guy walrus mustache from jump jump to conclusions matt yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's pretty young buck in this film too what's his name richard real he does look much younger but also exactly the same yeah (laughs) because office space was probably that was 96 i think okay so i mean or maybe 98 oh yeah i was thinking it was only about 10 years earlier you know i might be butchering that let me see when it might have been like oh two or oh three or something oh it's 99 damn Oh, all right. So it's so 10 years old around it. Yeah. I have people skills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Every time I see that part, I just, I'm waiting for him to like say that. But, and then the other guy, the other internal affairs guy, do you recognize him? Um, I don't think I did. Patches. Of, or no, no, no. I, I'm confusing him with Rip Torn. No, it's uh Steven Root. He was the, uh, he was also in uh, Dodgeball. He played the uh, like the cuck to that uh, his Asian wife, the dude who was like the workout freak. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna be back oh, here. I'm gonna be working on oh. my delts. And he was in Office Space too. He was Milton, this my stapler. So wait, in Dodgeball, the guy who's reading Obscure Sports Quarterly. Yes, the Ocho. When, when she <laughs> when she does the. The L, like, loser forehead thing. He's like, L for love. Yeah. Wait, that's, a, <laughs> that's him. That's the, that's the same guy as Milton in Office Space? Yeah, Milton Wadhams. Are you sure? We fixed the glitch. Dude, watch. Steven Root. Dude, he's a chameleon, man. He's a great actor. He's been in a ton of shit. Yeah, he was Milton. He oh, played. Yeah. Yeah, before right. that, he was, like, the head honcho of news radio. That, like, ran the office and news radio. That's a pretty deep cut. Um, yeah, he's old. Wow, he's good for him. 70, I'd, 70 years old. 
I've seen both of those so many times and never made that connection. Yeah. So yeah, I thought that was that was a fun seeing those two fellas. Uh, I I I like the side plot too. That kind of like right out of the gate, it paints Michael Douglas as like he he operates in the gray. He's not he's not good completely. He probably he overachieves to like offset like the little bit of bad that he dabbles in because he's he's clearly skimming off the top to justify like being divorced and having a upkeep with kids and all that kind of shit so he's just doing what he can to get by um and that's like yeah the main... he, just, he strikes me as just like a piece of shit that you root for though i love i love yeah. the part eventually when he's like did i steal i mean yeah i stole like <laughs> this whole time he had been you know fighting against all these accusations and getting mad at the internal affairs people and then later on he's like well yeah i mean i stole yeah and then when he steals the plates and gives them to the to that guy at the very end, like, yep, there he is. Yeah. Chase, don't do that. It's just like one more kind of less than dignified act. I, I thought, thought that, I thought that was dignified because he's show he's showing like I'm still a good guy at the end of the day. Like, see, I could have jacked these and I could have. I could have come up on this. I kind of thought when Moss gave, gave him the gift that, that the plates were going to be in there. Which, oh, you like, know, because Mike, because Michael Douglas is going home. He still doesn't make enough money, <laughs> you know, for his kids right? and everything. So when, when he gives him that gift and he's like, oh, it's for your kids. My thought was, oh, shit, he's giving him both those plates so that he can go home. I mean, he's already... We've, it's well established that he's willing to steal money from scumbags, so right. it doesn't seem like too far of a leap for him to just counterfeit enough money to be able to take care of his family. Right. But, uh, nope, then he ended up giving it to the other guy, which I don't know how valuable U.S. currency is to a man living in Japan, but maybe he can resell them or do something. Well, isn't that the whole plot of the movie that they're trying to get that that other half of the plate so they can counterfeit it? They can make money off that, like they can. Well, the the mob can, but right. a guy who's kind of on the straight and narrow as a police officer. Well, no. So he was giving that back, like, "Hey, turn this in to like the Japanese cops." Like, see, I'm a, I'm actually a, deep down, I'm a good guy. I'm giving this back to you. Like, that's yeah, the way I guess I, took I, it. I I just interpreted it as like. Because if he really wanted to, I don't know. In my mind, if he if he really wanted to just turn them over to the authorities, he could have done that when there were cops crawling over that house. But the fact that he took them, maybe he was thinking about taking it home for his own use, and then at the yeah. last minute cha- changed his mind and was like, "Here you go." Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. I think personally, I think it's a thing between Mott's and Michael Douglas, like. Like, even ev- after everything they all went through, he probably feels like Mott still thinks at the end of the day he's got a sliver of, like, you're a piece of shit. And I think he that gesture towards the at the end when he gives the plates back to Moss, like, he wanted that to be their parting shot. Like, see, like, I have your back, you have mine, you can trust me, this is my last 
honorable act, I guess. Because then, then he's got to go back between with his tail between his legs back to the States. I think his hope in this entire film, too, was obviously he had a hard-on to bring this Sato guy to justice because he's using that as, like, leverage or a bargaining chip for when he comes back because he's still got to face the internal affairs. You know, that's not just going away. So that was, like, he, he was chomping at the bit to get this case taken care of as, like, you know, another bargaining chip. But then I think it morphs to, like, then it becomes an honor thing after Charlie dies because he feels responsible because he is, at the end of the day, responsible for his partner dying. So maybe it's a little bit of both, but um, I think that's what the film yeah. is trying to get across, like, showing his change from a character of thinking about himself and what he can do to get by and get off to, like, becoming a man of honor, you know, as corny as that sounds but that's what i think no, they're I, going I, for. I agree uh because at first you know it's a pride thing like it's his it's his arrest he want to make sure he wants to make sure it goes the way it's supposed to because like you said yeah he can he's already in some hot water so making that big of an arrest will look good for him and then to lose the guy now he wants to get him back for his own reputation and then mm -hmm. add his, his partner getting killed on top of that, it just ratchets it up to like a third level of right of why he so badly wants to get it done. Because, yeah, at, what, at one point, would you just be like, I'm just getting on a plane and going back to the States. You guys can figure Fuck. it out. Because it, like, it seemed like such a corrupt, unwinnable yeah. situation. But, yeah, the pride of getting credit for the arrest plus not getting humiliated plus vengeance for your partner it's like okay well yeah i can i can totally see why he wouldn't leave with all of those things happening you know <clears throat> yeah yeah when he goes over there and he loses him that's kind of when the movie logic takes full effect it jumps the shark because it's like if that happened dude the japanese police ain't gonna fucking help you one american detective in like a sea of 15 a city of 15 million people and there's this like massive yakuza ongoing war that's been raging for a while at least and yeah there's so many players it's like yeah you get on a fucking plane and that's the end of the story so otherwise this wouldn't be a movie but it is so right well do you remember when they tag along uh they tag along on that raid and they just like jump in the back of the van like we're just observers we're just here observing yeah <laughs> and then and then they uh they get to the the scene of the hideout or whatever and then when they bust in the, the Amer american guys come in like the japanese cops all sort of stand back a little bit and defer to them it's like okay that would never never no. happen but Fuck no. it's okay yeah it yeah, wasn't man up i don't know what was that oh the what's his face gonna have to man up yeah the man oh. up yeah, well, I, I should have put the whole thing in there. That's when he's like, you're playing man's football now. Gonna have to man up. Uh, yeah, he that, asked him like where, where he went to college, right? He's like... Uh, no, he, he's... Uh, yeah, he went to Missouri, and he's like, he's like, yeah, you're not gonna be able to get away with doing that. That's that's small time. You, used to, you could get away with that in Missouri, but now we're playing man's football. 
Gonna have to man up. <laughs> do you, do you want to maybe explain that for the listeners who are extremely lost, having heard a few of those clips in the last couple weeks? Yeah, what is his name? I think it's. I think his name is Jonathan Harris. So while you look that up, a little bit of background for those folks listening. This is from a 10 to 13-year-old season of Hard Knocks, right? Where yeah. They're in Cincinnati. And this guy is what, like a tight end coach? Or yeah. like an O-line coach? Yeah, he's tight and end coach he's, Jonathan Hayes. And he's watching film with one of their young recruits named Chase. Who cares what his last name is? Chase Kaufman and, from Missouri. He was their draft pick in 2008. They're... They're watching film of Chase, basically not knowing how to do anything right. So these these little drops you keep hearing are uh, a coach at the end of his rope with a player who doesn't know what he's doing. And Jim has a weird Asperger-like obsession with this clip. And it took him so long to find it that now he's just going to beat it to death. So Chase. What the fuck were you thinking about? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, perfect perfect example. That's such a good one. <laughs> yeah, that's gotta be my favorite, but <laughs> you have any moves? I'd like to see you incorporate them. Yeah, he's just such a fucking condescending prick to this rookie fucking tight end, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, uh, that's not going away anytime soon. Um, that that last one I think is my favorite where he's like, You got any moves? Yeah, I think he's just—he's like, yeah. It's like, well, I'd like to see you incorporate him. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's oh. giving him definitely tough love, you know. Yeah, and I, I a little background on that too. I guess he, Jonathan Her- or Jonathan Hayes, he played football with the uh, Kansas City Chiefs with Chase Kaufman's dad. Dave Kaufman. So he's been a family friend his whole life. So he gives him a little bit extra shit because he wants him to like rise to the occasion, which he never does. That's like when, um, that's like when you see a a coach whose kid is on the team and they go even harder on their kid. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Totally. Chase, don't do that. Yeah. And every time he (laughs) fucks up while they're watching film, he makes him do 10, 15 pushups. So, oh, yeah. like, there's, like, a montage of him, like, saying, like, what the fuck? And then he's, like, 15 push-ups. And so he does push-ups, like, fuck, in that one episode, like, 30 times. It shows him just banging out, like, 10, 15 push-ups during their film session. But, yeah. Um, Need, needless to say, his career didn't last very long, right? N- no. Yeah, I think he bounced around the league for, like, three or four years. Got signed. And the last team he was on, he was on the practice squad. Now he sells real estate, I think. Um, <laughs> I swear, dude, every ex-NFL player, it's either you're in the booth, real estate, or they're a financial advisor. Or they work with the team, like, as a coach. But um, yeah, Okay. I could, I, could see a, I could see a strong correlation between elite athlete and sales in one way or another right you have to be good with people you have to be able to read the person that you're talking to you can't just be totally socially unaware and you also have have to have a certain level of confidence you know i don't think most people make it to high level of sports with you know low self-esteem right yeah they're usually I, i could totally see that yeah charismatic and 
I mean, most of them, it seems like they have some kind of financial acumen, but, um, all right. So I guess at this point, we don't really have to go through all the plot and everything. I mean, cause I mean, this is pretty complex kind of plot with, with black rain. There's Michael Douglas, side story with the, uh, internal affairs. And then he just happens to be, depending on the way you look at it right place right time to see like uh a japanese yakuza coming over to the u.s and he murders a dude in front of like 50 people in an italian eatery he kills two guys well no in no he he killed okay right so he kills two guys in front of like in broad daylight in front of like 50 people so enter Andy Garcia and Michael Douglas, they capture him, they get him, they extradite him to Japan and uh, promptly lose him uh, by being served papers in Japanese from someone standing in as the Japanese police department when they're just inside guys, you know, part of the Yakuza that our main villain, Sato, uh, is in cahoots with and then so they lose him again and then the rest of the movie is just him on a wild goose chase trying to like you know fish out of water trying to get his bearings find a friend a lifeline try to get himself in with Mots, the handler of the japanese police that's tasked with uh kind of holding his hand and those two they they kind of they they play off each other pretty well and and Mott's finally kind of can see where Michael Douglas is coming from, not always being like the company man and, you know, operating in, uh, on the periphery to get things done, maybe not by the book. Uh, and then it culminates with them finally uh, bringing Sato to justice. And I, I like that there's not like a happy ending. There's not like a lot of resolution, like, because at that point, it's about just finally getting the damn thing done and bringing Sato to justice. You don't really give a shit what michael douglas is coming back to in the states um but yeah that's that's kind of it in a nutshell that's distilled down to a pretty fine point but um i had a question i i I was wondering what what do you think is my favorite part of this film um hmm, let's see i'll give you a hint it's a little bit more comedic than the last time I posed this question at Thunderheart. It's a comedic moment. Is it, is it when they're on the plane back to Japan and he's staring at him and he's like, what the fuck are you looking at? And then he like punches him in the face. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. I love that part. Because he noticed, I don't know if you picked up on it, so uh, Michael Douglas, is they're sitting on the plane extraditing the main villain, Sato, back to Japan. And... This is back in the... It, it was wild. This is back in the days when you guess you could smoke cigarettes on the plane. So Michael Douglas is just banging heaters, and he's playing solitaire, like old-school analog solitaire, with actual cards, and he's he cheats in solitaire, and, and the villain Sato notices it, picks up on it, and he looks down, notices he's cheating, and then he looks over at michael douglas and gives him kind of this like shit-eating little grimace i did not pick up on that yeah and then that's when michael douglas 
says, what the fuck are you looking at or whatever? And then he pretends to like stretch and lean back and he fucking just elbows him. He chicken wings him super hard in the face. <laughs> and then, and then uh, Andy Garcia comes Andy, back. Yeah. He's like, what, he's what's like, going I, on? He must have, he must have bit his lip or something. Yeah. And I like too. He look, he's, he calls everyone babe when he's being like, Oh my God. That passive that, aggressive, that, like condescending dick. He's like, you okay, babe. <laughs> That got that got pretty tiresome pretty early yeah. for me actually because they were they were just pushing it like every five seconds. If I could rewatch it, I would want a counter for how many times they said babe and how many how many sigs they were looking because it was just relentless. Yeah, yeah, especially and when yeah, they smoke. go to that that karaoke bar. Just everyone yeah, imagine just smoking cigarettes. Yeah, imagine being on like a twenty-hour flight or whatever it is, and people are just ripping butts the whole time. That sounds too. I just got off a plane uh, from California, and I was thinking about that because now I get this weird like vertigo kind of. I don't know if it's vertigo, but like I get this weird nausea right when you take off and you get yeah. up to fucking cruising altitude between the point of like taking off and before you get to like 32,000 feet or whatever, I get this weird fucking queasiness, like car sickness kind of feeling. And then it stabilizes. But I could only imagine, dude, if there were like 20, 30 people in my general area fucking smoking cigarettes, dude, I'd throw up so much. It's fucking unreal. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how people dealt with that. Same thing, like, when you hear about, like, people back in the 60s and 70s, they go on, like, long family vacations, and their parents are fucking just up front smoking cigarettes with the windows rolled up and shit. Like, fuck that. Or if a restaurant has a smoking section, the entire restaurant is the smoking section. That's one of the things I really don't like about casinos. Like, normally they're a good time, but that fucking smell that's, like, locked into, like the machines themselves and the carpet and everything it just it reminds me of what being a smoker and not being able to smell it but then being pulled out of it and not smoking cigarettes for like 10 years it's just like so pervasive yeah tell me about it it's gross i mean that's been one of that's been one of the best things about covid as it relates to casinos is a lot of them went through on smoking if not throughout the entire casino, they cut down on different areas where you could smoke, which, yeah, it's it's a nightmare. And, and I mean, that's something we can get into in a, a later episode. The reason right. why I spend I spend more time than most in casinos, but <laughs> yeah. the smoke, the, the smoking, the smoking is unreal. And yeah. I don't know what the stats are, but let's just pretend the u.s population is let's be generous and say 10 percent smokers even though i doubt it's anywhere near that high mm -hmm. casino patron the percentage of casino patrons that are smokers has got to be like 40 it's unreal i think wow i think there's just a huge i think there's a correlation between scumbag degenerate gamblers no offense and smokers <laughs> like there's yeah. a risky it's, a, it's a venn diagram with a big overlap you know? yeah totally yeah, yeah. This day and age, you don't really notice a lot of people out in like the general public who smoke. No. But yeah, it becomes concentrated when you go to a casino for sure. Except out in the Midwest, I've noticed there's a lot of smokers out here. Oh really? That's yeah, it's yeah, it's still a big thing. But we got low gas prices, so fuck it. Uh, 
I think out here it just eclipsed like 489 and people are out here about to riot in the fucking streets. I was like, I just saw a buddy post something that's like 689 in San Diego right now. Unreal. Yeah, even when I went back to California this past week, I I was seeing in Corning, I was seeing like 615. I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. Uh, Yeah. Don't worry though, it should get better soon. Uh, No, it won't. I guess... Oh, do you know an uh, interesting part that has some historical context? Uh, when, you know, the the other main Yakuza, like the old dog, uh, Sugai, when he's mm-hmm. talking about uh, the Black Rain, which is where the movie takes its namesake from, a uh, little piece of historical significance of Black Rain, so... On August 6th and 9th of 1945, during World War II, when the U.S. dropped the atomic bombs on uh, two Japanese cities, uh, the first of which was Hiroshima on August 6th, uh, which was a major Japanese shipping port, and then the second bomb dropped three days later on Nagasaki, um, Emperor Hirohito refused to surrender following the devastation. Hirohito finally ordered his country's surrender and the United States were with Japan. So, Sugai's involvement in these chain of offense, uh, the fictionalized account, is that he lived in one of these cities. Uh, the city isn't revealed, whether it was Hiroshima or Nagasaki, but as a boy when he was there, And when the bomb was dropped, he states, I was 10 years old when the B-29 came. We were underground for three days. When we came up, the city was gone. Then the heat brought rain. Black rain. So, Tsugai's suggesting that the pollution from the atomic fallout had somehow turned the rain black. Um, He goes on to say that the war... Following the war, uh, American values were forced onto his people by the United States, who had agreed to aid in the rebuilding of Japanese society due to the destruction. You're welcome. (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. Due to the destruction caused not only by the atomic bombings, but also for many other non-atomic bombings of other Japanese cities during the war in the Pacific. Um, So, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting and then he goes Sugai also goes on to say the this policy of greed um over honor created young gangsters like sato like he's he's trying to graft that onto that's why this new generation of greed over honor is distilled in the form of sato uh, who's more violent reckless power hungry money hungry and the war between sato and sugai on the japanese side that you know, Michael Douglas is the outsider looking in on. Sato wants his own territory to rule over, uh, and it involves seizing, obviously, the territory from Sugai, who is also his boss. Um, but, so, like, that goes back to, like, Sugai's plan is to flood the American economy with counterfeit money and reap the benefits. So trying to, like... That's his revenge at getting back. So that's that's the significance of what they would have done, like uh, had they had everything gone their way, and that was the the main struggle with for the counterfeiting to begin with. Whereas Sato just wanted to do it to get fucking rich, and you know the greed factor, greed over honor. So I, I thought that was kind of an interesting context too. And then one thing too, I didn't mention how he was talking about. Um, this is kind of veering away from the movie, but I think it's it's worth talking about. Um, 
when he talks about, you know, aside from the the horrific nature of the atomic bombs and, and like everyone knows about those, like, you know, how incredibly devastating those were, but the non-atomic attacks that preceded the atomic bomb drops, which were the fire fire bombings of like dozens and dozens of Japanese cities, like I think this gets lost on a lot of Americans too. And I'm not I want to preface it too, I'm not saying, you know, like American guilt or I'm not pushing an agenda here but like when i learned about this i was kind of like taken aback i didn't realize like even taking the destruction caused by the atomic bombs the fire bombings that preceded us dropping those atomic bombs ostensibly to end the war which i i have opinions about too but the fire bombings that preceded that were fucking insane and not a lot of people know about it like are do you know what i'm talking about like how like yeah. how many hundreds of thousands of people were burned the fuck alive and how many cities were just completely wiped out even before we amped up to the atomic level yeah i think that's when they first invented napalm because they would drop it and it would just it would just burn everything it came in contact with and most of their houses were made of like not straw but like paper like material it may as well have just been kindling right right i don't know if you've read i don't know if you're familiar with or if you've read uh malcolm gladwell he's got a book it's called the bomber mafia i think it's really interesting Mm -hmm. it's a good book recommend it if you if you care uh it sort of boils down to god i'm gonna butcher it because a lot of it has to do with the bombing in world war two of Japan and like different philosophies of, you know, uh, is it better to just like bomb the shit out of an, of an entire city and just get them to give up like by attrition? Or is it better to bomb like strategic, you know, smaller sites that just cripple their ability to, you know, like, let's say if they're building planes or whatever, if you can bomb, the place that makes all the propellers well now they don't have planes and you don't have to bomb an entire city you can just take out that one strategic thing it it talked about it in germany and japan but right uh, yeah it's inter- it's an interesting book but it talks about I, I can't remember exactly what it was but one of the generals because there was a disagreement between like two main generals on how to take japan and i the one who decided to use the atomic bomb I believe was actually given this is going to sound crazy but I can double check it later he was given like an award or an honor from Japanese like emperor at the time because he's like we would not have given up a ground war and we both would have lost like hundreds of thousands if not millions of troops before the inevitable surrender happened because they were just you know outgunned so in a weird ironic twist of fate he was like thanks for doing that because it saved us both a lot of lives but that's so fucking warped like just thinking about that like that's wild i i yeah off air i'd be i'd be curious to see that because i actually wrote a paper in college about that about uh like being against using the atomic bombs in japan as a as a means of ending the war in the in the pacific um and i I hate this country 
No, I, I, I won't get into it, but like, you know, like the standard party line is like, you know, we did it to be by by killing, vaporizing hundreds of thousands of Japanese men, women and children instantly. It saved, you know, like it's thrown around like another five, six, seven, eight million Americans and Japanese who would have died if we would have kept going like traditional warfare avenue but the research i did you know like it it looked like that the emperor was close to some sort of like appeasement or uh some 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 sort of compromise because to the russians were were coming in on on the backside too um I, i read a good book where a guy was talking about you know it wasn't as clear cut and he his overarching theory was it was more of a display of power and dominance like by using the atomic bombs to russia like saying hey look what we have kind of waving our finger behave but anyway that's going down a huge tangent that's not related to this movie but yeah I, i thought that the the part about the black rain was significant and interesting to talk about because that's what this fucking film is called. But, um, and it, it's weird if you think about, because the movie, let's see, the movie was, I don't know, 30 years ago, 33 or whatever. So it was only 40 50, years. Like, 50, yeah. 50. Yeah. 40, like 45 years. So, you know, the movie doesn't seem that old and it's 30 plus years. So at that time, the atomic bombs had only been dropped 30, 40 years prior to that, which probably didn't seem like that long to them, you know? So to us, it's like, wow, that was, you know, 80 years ago, but... Yeah, yeah. Isn't that wild to think about? Like, what if what if the roles were reversed and then, like, a Japanese film company was coming in and making a film called, like, Green Fire or something, you know? Or Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was only it was only thirty years apart, you know. Like that's that's weird to think about. But I guess do- that's a good dovetail into this. So uh, I guess talking about like the filming and production of Black Rain, I guess Ridley Scott had a ton of difficulties, kind of similar to the difficulties he had working on Blade Runner with a all British crew. Is he had a like I guess filming. An American film, maybe it's they're more stringent, but filming this film in Japan, he wanted to film like the studio was against it. But Ridley Scott, he's like a perfectionist and he wants like authenticity and yada yada yada. He pushed, like, no, I want to make this fucking thing in Japan. But all the red tape involved with like getting permits and like, you know the certain times of day that you could film it was like extremely hard so like they'd have these long setups so like normally where under normal circumstances they could film for like you know seven or eight hours but that would equate to like you know 16 or 20 hours worth total including like prep before and cleanup after in japan they could only eke out like two to three hours of actual filming time, but they had the same, if not more amount of prep work that they had to do to sites and then tear everything down and make sure, make it like nothing. There was no semblance of a film crew or anything here the next day, just to then have to rebuild it all again, sets, 
getting all the shots, the cameras set up and everything just to eke out, you know, another two hours worth of actual filming. So like the, the production was distended, um, a lot of money burnt filming. Uh, so, and that, that dovetails too. So the end scene in that last mo motorcycle chase of Michael Douglas and Sato in that vineyard, that was actually filmed in Napa, Napa Valley, California, because at that point, oh, they no had, kidding. yeah, they had almost run out of money. So that's when Ridley Scott had kind of had to turn tail and be like, okay, yeah, we got to finish this in California. Um, because of all the constraints and the difficulties involved with, you know, a major, you know, uh, I don't know if you call this a blockbuster, but this is a major film production, you know, so they, yeah, they had to film. So all of that, like the last maybe quarter of the film, I guess, uh, was filmed at Silverado Country Club in Napa Valley, California. Um, Silverado? Oh, I think I know where that is. Yeah, I've never been, but I mean, obviously, the beginning of the film is takes place in New York, so they filmed, they filmed all that shit in New York. Uh, some of the sets and and stuff, it was filmed in L.A., um, but yeah, like in Manhattan, Queens, and then uh, they went over. They filmed the rest of it in sequence, so like the third to the like three quarter mark of the film all that was filmed in osaka japan um and then they had to come back and, and film that rest the rest of that in napa fun fact that's funny i i wasn't sure if it was like maybe a stylistic choice but it seemed like the last maybe quarter of the movie like it wasn't as dark visually it seemed to get yeah. a little brighter like a little brighter it seems like something that they would do intentionally, but maybe not. Yeah. Yeah, that could have just been like the constraints that they were dealing with at that at that vineyard too. But yeah, you can they definitely never... tell like a, there's a there's a little bit of a difference. I don't know if I would say it was a stark contrast, but I'm sure maybe it, they it, just it, didn't have enough money to put it through the gloom and doom filter like the rest of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, because it is very Blade Runner-ish in the, uh, and I think that's what he was going for with like the the Asian aesthetic in Blade Runner too, trying to bring that to 2019's Los Angeles. Um, Maybe redeem himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Is there anything uh, else about like the plot? or anything involved uh, that we haven't discussed s thus far about Black Rain that you want to touch on? I don't think so. I mean, like you said, it's not... It It's, you know, it's complex, but it's not overly complicated, you know? I didn't think they... they belabored anything about it. I just thought it was, like, a pretty straightforward, cool, cool story. I would... I would recommend it if anybody hasn't seen it and has a desire to see it after listening to us talk about it for the last hour. Yeah. I mean, I like it a lot, too. I'd never sit here and try to pick it apart because it's got a sentimental value for me, and uh, I just think it's a good film. But if I were getting nitpicky, I think that the total runtime could come down a little bit because it, it does kind of... I agree. It is a slog in it, some parts. It drags a little, uh, but I think, for me anyway, it wraps up... You know, it's like they say about telling a good joke, the punchline has to 
it has to justify the buildup, you know? Right. So there were definitely points throughout the movie where I was checking the clock, like, come on, God, this is longer <laughs> than it needs to be. But I felt like it wrapped up clean enough at the end to where when it was over, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm fine with that. Sweet. Right on. Personally. So to wrap it up, uh, I guess I'll just run through a little bit of trivia. There's actually quite a bit of trivia on this, but um, I'll keep it to the, the salient points. One of my, my favorite pieces is, um, so our main villain, Sato, the badass fucking greed over honor main villain played by yusaku matsuda this was his last film role um and uh, he was young yeah so uh, matsuda he knew he had bladder cancer i guess through the whole shoot and preceding getting cast for the film uh and he knew too his doctors were telling him like hey this is this shit this bladder cancer your condition and everything it's going to be aggravated by you know i mean he has quite a few action scenes you know he's running he's fucking tumbling over cars and shit and um especially his finger up yeah (laughs) and the end you know the the final salvo with with michael douglas um and but he elected to do so anyway unbeknownst to director ridley scott reportedly reportedly saying this way i will live forever uh on november 6th so i think this released on september September 23rd, 1989, on November 6th, uh, so like less than six, seven weeks after the film's American premiere, uh, Matsudo died of bladder cancer at the age of 40, and this film is dedicated, this film is dedicated to his memory. Yeah, how badass is that? Holy shit, that's rough. Just G'd up from the feet up, he knew he had all that shit, didn't tell anyone, and was like... Yeah, fuck it. He finally told the dude, like, the director at the end of, like, filming, like, yeah, this way I will live forever. I wonder, That's pretty badass. Yeah, but I mean, I wonder if it was terminal from the get-go or if he would have taken steps to treat it if he could have survived it, you know? Yeah. I would like to think that it was just terminal and that he had nothing to lose by it because that would suck for, I mean, this isn't out for any film, even if it were like a 10 out of 10, one 10 Oscars kind of movie, that still wouldn't be worth it. If, if by choosing not to film it, you could have had another year, two, three years with your family, you know, like, yeah, do that. You mean... You mean like when Raul Julia sacrificed his life to give us the cinematic masterpiece known as Street Fighter? God. Yeah, that's a tough one, too. He's fucking awesome. You know what's... It kind of like that, too. Uh, Do you know about Raul Julia, like, making that film? He said he made it for his kids. Mm -hmm. He he Mm -hmm. said he, he... Raul Julia stuck out street fighter and gave it his all 110 percent uh because his kids were big fans of the street fighter video game and he wanted like his last he knew that was going to be his last thing so that's why he's like he's going for it he's going full balls to the wall in street fighter um which is kind of laughable legend for the movie that it is but i think that that just speaks to his character and then like similarly to this matsuda guy just like 
I don't care if I'm in Street Fighter or, you know, whatever movie it is. I'm going to fucking give it my all and be a professional and, and just do my very best. It's pretty pretty hardcore. Pretty badass. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So this one, uh, going back to, like, how hard it, it is for an American crew to film in Japan. So when the crew ran even a few minutes over their allotted filming time at any given location in Japan, not only were they told to leave, a man physically walked in front of the camera and forbade them from continuing to film. <laughs> yeah, that would make it tough. And let's see. Yeah, there's, there's a piece about uh, Mats, Ken Takakura being well-known for playing yakuza gangsters uh so he's going against type and oh yeah and then so the guy who played sato uh the main bad guy yusaku matsuda he was well known for regular regularly playing uh company men like straight man detectives too so it's kind of interesting it's like a little flip floppy yeah i am the last one um (laughs) Oh, this one's interesting, too. So the plot of Black Rain was originally supposed to be the plot for Beverly Hills Cop 2 with Eddie Murphy, which... Really? Yeah, that's weird. I've, I've never seen any of those. Really? That's where the... Uh, you put the banana in the tailpipe? That's what that's from. Is from I think that's from Beverly Hills Cop 1. Eddie Murphy and Judge Reinhold. I've never seen them. Another piece, too, about... So, I guess Ridley Scott vowed never to shoot in Japan again due to the high cost and excessive bureaucratic wrangling that was incurred during location filming there. He's like, yeah. I can't even imagine just the, financial, just the financial cost of moving in of an entire production over there, let alone, like, the emotional burden of... I don't know how long they were there filming. That's got to be such a huge pain in the ass. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. What did you think of the score in this film? Uh, I thought it was okay. Not really super metal. Some of the songs were definitely of that era, you know, yeah. like in the beginning. And I yeah. think it's the same one at the end, but. The fucking, the, I'll be holding on. Kind of had some, yeah. like, some uh, Michael McDonald vibes there. Yeah. Uh, I guess this this too. This was coming. Ridley Scott had come off a, a string of financial and critical failures, stemming back to Blade Runner. Um, I guess this, and then he followed this up with Thelma and Louise, which I didn't realize he directed that um, in in ninety one. Wow. I guess I guess those two films uh, cemented his quote unquote comeback uh, to America. Isn't that like a really cheesy movie? I've never seen it. You've never seen Thelma Louise? No. It, it's actually pretty badass. Oh, really? It's not like a, a cheesy, like... No. Late... No. It's pretty. Oh. It's actually pretty dark in some spots. Uh, I think it's, it's known for a couple things. One being... Uh, I don't want to spoil the film, but... Yeah, I know. They drive off a cliff at the end, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, living with those characters in the movie, and then it does have, like, an emotional impact, like, at the end, because they're, like, two women scorned and, like, you know, been trampled on by men, and, and 
Yeah. Just two women scorned and, and that that's their final salvo, like their final fuck you is is pretty pretty That'll hardcore. show them. Yeah. <laughs> is that drive also off really cliff. rainy? No, it's not. It actually it's it's got a very desert aesthetic. Um whoa. Yeah, which is pretty stark contrast for Ridley Scott films, but yeah, like a lot of people think of that as like Brad Pitt's breakout. He's in that. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I can't remember how long this film is. It's it feels pretty long. Uh, I think it's like it's somewhere between like an hour and fifty and two hours and fifteen minutes. But so Ridley Scott's first cut of this was two hours and forty minutes long. That would definitely. Yeah, it was. It was just over two hours. Okay. Yeah, two, that that'd be it, way it, too fucking long. It not need to be. No. Um, oh, uh, no, the last last couple parts uh, about because I liked him so much. I liked Mats a lot. Uh, Ken Takakura, at the time, he was considered Japan's biggest box office star uh, when he filmed. Uh, Black Rain in '89, hmm. and he he was actually he was so popular too at the time of filming that the sets would be mobbed by fans trying to get his autograph <laughs> when they were filming in Japan for Black Rain, and it caused trouble as the film was on a very strict strict time frame. So add that to like everything else right. having to film over there too, but then you think of him and he seems like this kind of gentle, sensitive, unassuming type guy, and people just like losing their shit like the fucking Beatles are in town, like. <laughs> That's just that's kind of a funny juxtaposition. Like you like you said, it's just one more thing that made it that much more difficult to get it done. Wow. Yeah. Ooh, Jackie Chan turned down the role of Sato because he felt audiences didn't want to see him play a quote unquote bad character. That would be fucking weird to think about. But I guess too that was before he had his breakout with American audiences. I think he broke out with. Uh, Rumble in the Bronx. So that's like either 92 or 94. That was his breakout to like American audiences, but Yeah, I didn't I didn't really become aware of him until I guess like 96 just based on where I was living at the like, time, like Rush Hour. Uh Jackie Chan's First Strike. I think that's the one I remember. Oh yeah, right, right, right. I don't think I ever saw it, but I just remember becoming aware of it there was a video store down the street that would do five movies for five days for five bucks oh yeah the good old days yeah yep i worked at a blockbuster for a time in my youth from the like 2000 to 2002 i worked at a we, the, the biggest perk of, of that was we used to be able to get movies before they would go out for rent, mm-hmm. like two or three days before we could we could get a little taste before everyone else. And we got I got five five free movies a week that I could. Oh wow! Yeah, so that's kind of where. Yeah, that was like in those days. Like I know you can't even fathom it now with like the availability and ubiquity of fucking films and streaming and everything now, but. I remember back then I was like I felt like I was like 
pimp shit like being able to fucking walk away with five movies after a shift you know for a week that's that was actually kind of like my formative like coming into becoming a movie buff was like because i would just like watch everything i could get my hands on at at blockbuster that's where i i I really developed a fondness for uh bull durham i rented that movie so many fucking times (laughs) that is a good one that's just a good film um it really is that is such a good movie (laughs) all right well i think that uh, fuck there's so much trivia for this movie that's insane but yeah i think those are the most uh most interesting pieces that i could pull out of this but yeah i think this is this is one of those films that just gets kind of lost in the shuffle of like late 80s early 90s like procedural cop detective kind of movies and i by virtue of it being filmed in Japan and having the storyline that it does, I, f- I feel like it kind of rises uh, above a lot of that that glut of that type of film was popular in that time frame. Well, I so. certainly I certainly had never heard of it before uh, seeing like the poster that you had, and and even since then, I don't think I've heard anything about this movie ever. Yeah, and I mean it. By all accounts, it, it was not, a big deal. It was a Ridley Scott film. I mean, Michael Douglas is in it. He, he's been a he was in a, a huge draw for like twenty years, and even still, you know, you hear his name. He's got brand recognition. Sure. So, yeah, it is. It is kind of a, a forgotten gem, a deep cut, if you will, which is why I chose it. Um, yeah, so that's a good call. Okay, cool. So I'm I'm back. I'm I'm batting above 500 i think now for exposing you to to quote unquote good films three for four sweet um all right well i think that's gonna that's gonna do it for us here at waxing the porpoise uh this has been our review of black rain uh check it out if you haven't strong recommend from both of us um if you got any questions, comments, uh, you can send us an email at wax at waxingtheporpoise.com. Find us on Instagram, Waxing the Porpoise, or our Twitter, waxing, at Waxing the Porp. Next week, we are going to be talking about the relatively unknown gem, uh, Near Dark, starring Bill Paxton and Lance Henriksen of Pumpkinhead fame. He was also Bishop in Aliens. Have you seen Aliens? Nope. Oh, Jesus. All right. Well, proof positive right there while we're, while we're doing this show. Um, so, yeah, that's what we'll be talking about next, Near Dark. I think that's 87, and it's available right now on Shudder and AMC Plus, I believe. Um, so, yeah, thanks for joining us uh, again. Hope to see you next time, and take it easy. Thanks, man. Chase, what the fuck were you thinking about here? Alright, that's it. Recording. <laughs>